Hello, everyone, and, and welcome. My name is Rennie Pritikin. I'm the chief curator here. And uh, on behalf of our director, Lori Starr, and our board of trustees, I want to welcome you here to this very special event for us, uh, and I hope for you as well. So I uh, have the privilege and honor to introduce these two folks. Um, we're truly privileged to hear from Rick Prellinger and Peter Forgash. Um, they are, in my opinion, and arguably the two most important media artists working with archival material in the world. To have them together on one stage uh, is a memorable event for the city, for this institution, and for the art form. Rick Prelinger was born in 1953 in Washington, D.C., but has lived for a very long time here in the Bay Area, uh, along with his equally brilliant wife, Megan Prelinger, where they co-direct the Prelinger Library, a unique and fascinating archival library resource center for artists. If you haven't been there, I strongly suggest you put it on your to-do list. It's on 9th and Folsom, and it's amazing. Uh, Rick is an associate professor of film and digital media at UC Santa Cruz. In 2002, after 20 years of operation, his collection of 60,000 advertising, educational, industrial, and amateur films uh, was acquired by the Library of Congress. 6,000 of those films are free to see and use at the Internet Archive, which is an amazing San Francisco institution. For the past nine years, his Lost Landscapes of San Francisco film programs have become legendary public historical research events. Again, keep your eye open for those. They're what makes San Francisco special. Um, his film, No More Road Trips, a collage of many home movies depicting a mythical cross-country journey, debuted in 2013. And I believe we're going to see a little bit of that tonight. Peter Forgash was born in 1950 in Hungary and still resides in Budapest. Uh, he's best known for his private Hungary series of award-winning films based on home movies from the 1930s and from the 1960s, which document ordinary lives that were soon to be ruptured by an extraordinary historical trauma that occurs off screen. Thus, the clear connection with Letters to a Far Upstairs, which premiered in 2013 in Warsaw, uh, at our colleague muse museum in Poland. Um, in 1983, he founded the Private Photo and Film Archives Foundation in Budapest and has made this material the, quote, raw data for his postmodern reorchestrations re of history. His work has received acclaim and awards in many film festivals, including the San Francisco International Film Festival. In 2007, he received the Erasmus Prize as, quote, a person who has made an exceptionally important contribution to culture in Europe. And uh, in 2009, he represented Hungary at the seminal art festival, the Venice Biennale. So uh, we've got a couple of heavyweights here, folks. And um, they're going to talk about the show upstairs and issues in archiving uh, media art. Welcome. I'm really honored to be here in this fantastic Leapskin building, work together one of the best staffs I ever met, the technical stuff I'm talking first of all, and the others also made, made it possible to be as uh, special 
as was the Warsaw Exhibition. The great pleasure also to work and talk with Rick, who I know more than 25 years, and we have the same obsession, um, home movies, films, uh, heritage, thinking and moving image, and giving these uh, important lessons to learn how to read images to others. So I'm very happy to be here with Rick, and I would like to ask him also to, because I have this um, um, little card upstairs with the six hours uh, of project, so we need to have a little balance, so I ask Rick to show a little bit of his work, and then we can start to, to think together about the possibilities and impossibilities of of treasures in moving images. Um, thank you, Peter, and um, thanks to the museum and um, to Rennie for that uh, extremely kind and highly informative introduction. Um, I've had the, uh, well, I've had the privilege of knowing Peter, as he said, for a long time. I think the last time we appeared on a one-on-one -on -one was in 1998, probably, so we've got some some catching up to do, and we'll do it in public. Um, I've also had the, the privilege of working with home movies and amateur film uh, intensively for um, the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, as Rennie mentioned, I used to be an archivist of, of what I called ephemeral film, useful film, film that was made for a specific purpose, to sell, to promote, to educate, to convince, sometimes to miseducate. Um, and that sort of all went by the wayside when I began to get interested in home movies. Home movies have become cinema to me. Home movies are uh, unusual, privileged, unpredictable, uh, extremely dense and wonderful documents. And I, I hope that uh, today uh, possibly we can talk a little bit about what their potential is as well as what we actually do with them. Um, one of the one of the things that intrigues me about home movies is that they are, above all, evidence. They're incredible evidence as filtered through the eyes and the hands of ordinary people pursuing uh, everyday lives involved in ceremony, commemoration. Um, home movies quite often express love. People don't often shoot home movies of things they don't like, although you see it in Peter's work sometimes. Um, and, uh, in these documents, I, I find really, uh, quite captivating. I don't think we begin to know their potential. So I mentioned evidence. I'd also like to mention enigma. And, um, what I'm going to do is show a five-minute clip of my recent film, No More Road Trips, which is squarely on the side of evidence with a little bit of enigma. And I would propose that Peter's work while also um, squarely in the, in this, the evidentiary space, um, is, is perhaps more enigmatic. Uh, and especially the installation format, I think, may point to that. Um, but for the moment, let's look at, at five minutes of, of this film, No More Road Trips, which is a composite assembled from the home movies of about 80, 80 families. And it takes you from Atlantic to Pacific. It's about, just so you'll know, because you're not seeing the whole film, um, is our sense of mobility changing? 
Is the road trip still a journey of discovery, a migration towards a kind of enlightenment, or is it something else? And finally, um, is it true that landscape is history made visible? So the continuity of this film is, um, is, is, is pure and simply geography. Uh, it's a straight journey across with some jogs, a few twists, but no backtracking. The early days of our first uh, freeway, really outside cities. This is, of course, a peculiarly U.S. perspective, shooting out the front windshield. Smoky Pittsburgh, the Duquesne Incline, for those of you who are not from Pittsburgh. And then footage from the hill, a uh, African-American, Italian-American, and possibly Roma neighborhood. Really rare and unusual footage, bit of a surveillance quality. If you look at the pharmacy in the background, they're selling leeches. Can you see that? <laughs> Traditional uh, Italian-American remedies. And so I think um, uh, one of the uh, attributes of history, which is perhaps most uh, complex and perhaps hardest to naturalize, is that a great deal of this footage is simultaneous with the material that Peter uses in his installations uh, in a country that, although it was um, precarious in its way, was considerably more comfortable. Yeah, I think it's a gift to see these films because we, we see the main important things that makes us, the viewers, anthropologists. Because we are reading these images, and it's, it's very good that you show these, these American context films, because you, all of you could read them, read the faces, read the movement, place them where they belong to, and how we should look at them, and how we shouldn't look at them. So the naivete of the, of the filmmaker gives them also great freedom. And all those expressions that are played out for the camera are, are, are changing when they are just observing someone, somebody who is a stranger. So here we have this great thing, what, what had stopped with the digital age, um, because everybody is used to the camera. Those times, earlier times, of course, a camera was a new thing, and our reaction uh, to the camera is, if we don't know the person behind the camera, we might protest. And we see a lot of different um, attitudes that come clear when we are reading a lot of films. And we all of, all of us are able to place the time and 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 zone what what we <clears throat> what we understand but there are a lot of things that we understand what is behind the picture and and this introduction to the home movie as a feature tells us also the freedom of self expression home movie is is a kind of diary and self reflective diary opposite to the written diary, where you have to weigh every word, how will I describe, for example, I will write in my diary, I was sitting today with Rick, he has a white hair. So um, that means 
that I discover him after a few years that he's not so blondy anymore. I was always like this. He's lying. I mean, <clears throat> or I'm wrong. But let's take the evidence. The evidence is the home movie and photograph of Rick. And that's the trick. Um, as Rick just said, that we um, have the happy moments of, of the home movies. And in the little archive I'm running, where we have only 500, 600 hours of film, not thousands and thousands, you know. Yeah, but, We're a small country. What films you have? Well, okay. But this is what I'm, I'm trying to get on. Um, I've seen at least 150, around 150 marriages recorded on film, home movies, but I never saw one divorce. <laughs> now, statistically, if a Martian would come over and would try to understand human culture from these films, then this would be the happiest globe in the whole universe. If happiness means anything, we collect happiness because this is the almost ultimate way to forget that we are vulnerable species, we will die. I remember one of my sons when he was 10 years old, we were sitting around in a summertime in a big table with friends and he was around 10 and suddenly at the end, chocolate or ice cream, he said, and you will be dead, and you will be dead, and you will die, and you will die, and you will die, and you will die. And we were laughing, you know, because he was right, but how, he, how dare he is to tell me the truth, you know? So our, our, our quest for happiness um, is immense, because this is the way, this is the this is the positive way to get over the problems that we are, we are just getting out of, of the picture sooner or later. But this is what I like in your introduction, that we have also the enigma. Because behind these happy faces, we know there are a lot of things. And here comes the next chapter, how we contextualize the meaning and just test yourself take your family photo album not the digital one but the printed one you know what we collected in our youth or the younger people will see their grandpa's albums now just take that album and ask Aunt Jenny about the story about Freddie her husband now she will tell, he was so nice, and he earned a lot of money, and we were so happy. And then, beside Aunt Jenny, there is Lily, Aunt Lily. I said, but he left you, darling, didn't he? <laughs> and he, he was notorious in, in playing with cards, etc., etc. So the family narratives are very, very different. So the meaning of the picture is depending on the title. And if you see just a neutral photograph or a film, 
a young woman, black and white photograph, black and white film, sitting on a bench and a little bit sad. And then you just <clears throat> add the title, The Daughter of Himmler. You wouldn't like her, would you? Or if you give the title, The Daughter of Charlie Chaplin, so it's also the context where we place it. But here comes the third thing, what I wanted to mention, that we are very fast to read things. We're very fast to read the other, the other person's eye. We need to read it in fractions of seconds. We have to know the age, the culture, the danger. We have to decide that the person approaches us on the street, whether we are the victim or the would-be friends. And this is our, let's say, animal in us, because if we don't decide whether we're in danger or not, it can cost our life. So the reading and context is also extremely important. And we're not talking about history. We're not talking about dress code. We're not talking about how a woman's hand could be touched in Sicily or in Finland. So these are the things that are very, very interestingly composed. Just in this five minutes of, of thing, what you showed from your film, because we understand that in the black neighborhood, a different approach a different culture, a different, uh, and the Italian neighborhood is absolutely different. And even if not Marlon Brando is playing, you know, the chief, we know when we see an Italian family who know how to speak, you know, with the hand. So this is what makes us naive or professional would-be anthropologists. And the craft, crafted fine fiction film is the one which reaches this honest piece of the home movies. This is my opinion, of course, but this is full also with banalities. And this is very interesting because how we work, and this is the fourth thing I wanted to mention, memory. And memory is connected to amnesia. So briefly, this was the four things I wanted to introduce and add to your words. So um, one could say, uh, since I think it's largely true that um, home movies are a way of expressing love, attraction, affection, a drive to connect, um, one could say that in a way, uh, home movies are one of those places where complex relationships, complex ideas get reduced down to every family. You know, this is one of the critiques of, uh, of uh, Eddie Wong's new TV show, right, Fresh Off the Boat, that it's the story of every American family, but with yellow faces. He's used that terminology. But I, I happen to think that actually home movies are, um, are so complex that when you put them up on a big screen, and the scale changes from something you'd see in the living room on a small screen to something that becomes kind of a spectacle, that all of you become geographers, cultural geographers, ethnographers, anthropologists, um, 
psychoanalysts. You know, you become your um, ability to discern and analyze is suddenly enhanced by this change of scale. And I believe the seeds of all of those conflicts and all of those complex things that aren't meant to be shown are there for the grabbing if you look carefully. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, you know, I love the fact that we have thousands of birthday parties and uh, interminable footage of the Grand Canyon. I won't... <laughs> I won't look at the Grand Canyon anymore. Um, they're just, you know, it doesn't move. Don't, don't take pictures of flowers, canyons, fountains. Well, if, you know, this has changed over time. Please shoot things that change, that are dynamic. Shoot the lottery ticket dealer, you know. Shoot the <laughs> liquor store. Take your camera into a bar. That's what we'll want to see. But, um, you know, I have a feeling that, uh, that, that there's an immense amount of, uh, of, of revolution, uh, revelation there that's accessible to ordinary people. You know, you talked about digital. And um, one of the things I've realized about home movies uh, over the past few years is that we call them home movies, and they were shot on film, maybe later on video, shot on videotape. Same thing they made movies out of film. But home movies are not film. Home movies have nothing to do with the movies. Home movies, as you said, are diaries. They're part of a continuum of personal record keeping that begins with, I don't know, papyrus, clay tablets, quilting, diaries, samplers, uh, you know, postcards. And then for a brief and exciting period in the 20th century, black and white and Kodachrome, then video, and now digital. We don't know what personal record keeping is going to look like in 100 years, even in five years. We know that right now everybody's recording everything, and so is the NSA. That you know, There's this ubiquitous level of recording, and as a result, it seems to devalue. You know, The recordings lose privilege because there's so damn many of them, but most of them won't survive. We're going to have to come to terms with loss, and I believe that over time, um, just as home movie film being expensive, meant that shots were short and people typically didn't let the camera run, that we're going to move towards a new era of privilege in, in, in recording. I don't mean that you have to have money to do it, but people will select privileged moments. Have any of you looked at Vine online? Vine is an app for your phone where you make a six-second video, and you've got to make that six-second video count. And people are reinventing cinema. They're reinventing narrative, trying to make that six-second square work, trying to make it into something that might go viral, that might get revined. And um, I think that that's sophistication. I, I think that personal record-keeping and the home movie and the document that has um, a tremendous amount of, of, of depth, integrity, and resonance is constantly being reborn and remade. We just can't see it in the present. Oh, may I say one other thing about digital? Your work is, is made possible by digital, and so is mine. And one of my great revolu revelations about digital, you probably already knew this, was that um, digital helps you do traditional things better. Um, so this movie we were just looking at a clip of, that is shown before an audience that talks, that asks questions, that identifies things, that disagrees with one another. This is not radical. This is the Elizabethan theater with the groundlings in the front, you know, letting the actors know what they think of their performance and throwing bottles and bones and stale bread at them. Um, 
I think that there's a real fascinating issue of sort of, uh, you know, a new traditionalism that is made possible through um, digital technology. I agree, because it's, it's quite right on this exhibition, because you would never see these films in um, four meter wide and two and a half meter high. I mean, I can't translate it now in feet, but you saw if you took your five minute <clears throat> that was offered by Laurie, um, you saw it upstairs that these are huge canvases where life happens. And, and also um, digital made it possible to compose from these this kind of orchestrations that goes beyond the surface. And this is very important because Rick's short film sample also goes beyond um, the surface. On one hand, it's linear, like a music. But you remember the Afro-American family and the boys playing with walking stick. And you compare them, and you compare Pittsburgh and fog and smoke with the clean, non-Pittsburgh shots. So we have this huge organic identification and layering. Now, upstairs in the exhibition, this is what I really appreciated to go frame by frame. When I selected from this vast and beautiful collection. Of course, I had to avoid everything I tried from the Shoah. Because here we have this shell bomb that their life is full of illusions. The filmmaker have his or her illusion that now we grab this moment, this very situation, in Kamionka, the elders of Kamionka. And, and, and that point, and that time point, strictly speaking, in 1934, we see a very, very small shtetl where you don't see electric or telephone posts. I presume there was not much running water. And that means that it was preserved in a way in time like it was in the Pale Settlement under Russian rule. So we see something that comes from the Tsarist Russia recorded as a time capsule to show it back to the family back in New York. And now here we are, present time, watching carefully these faces, reading them and trying to decode them. We know a lot from ourselves, from our family, from the mirror, from the photographs, but we have to decode it because we see the social strata. We see there are poorer people, there are better off people. We see the clothes, we see the old abandoned synagogue, wooden synagogue, and then I have the association. Yes, it was burned down later. Now, what is present time? That's the big question. What is the present, what is the time feeling here? 
Are we swallowing back, swimming back in time? Or we have these time registers that are not mixed, unchangeable and changeable, flexible like... like um, Slide rule. Yeah, yeah. Um, back to the future. Yes, back to the future. So my attempt in this exhibition was exactly to slow down the time, repeat it as much as it requires, use this beautiful music of the uh, Klesmatics, Frank and, and Matt, and, and you can hear Lauren's beautiful voice in the, in the very last section, in the, um, the Krakow part, to create a situation where we can read every frame, because we are responsible for every frame reading, not just to save our lives, but also to understand, because this is what we do every day. Otherwise, we couldn't cross the street, the Market Street, if we wouldn't be aware of who is coming in the crowd, whether a car is coming, or what else can happen with us. So the magic is to create a time zone that is not anymore the point of time when it was recorded on celluloid, but it's the time where we are now. I would be the last person qualified to talk about issues of morality, but I, I will say um, that in general, uh, the moving image business is a fairly, uh, morality is not its first concern. And a lot of the tricks that, that people use in documentaries to engage you, to draw you in, to make you believe what the film wants you to believe or to espouse the cause that the, the film wants you to, to believe in, um, these are tricks that basically have nothing to do with a sense of uh, ethics. Um, but there's something deeply ethical about uh, Peter's work precisely and that it seeks to, it, it asks you to look at the frame. It asks you to, um, to dwell on an image or a series of images that might be defamiliarized in such a way that you won't take them for granted. Think about it, they're big, they're slowed down. They repeat, they stop, and then they start. They're in threes. They're on a scrim, which makes it hard for you to look at them as sharp, black and white. You know, um, there's a sense of, 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 of relativism to them. It's a very smart thing. And I would suggest that really this is one of the, um, there are many futures of, of, of moving image making, but one of the futures that I'm most excited about and maybe uh, in very different ways that we share, is this notion that um, you can trust audiences with the evidence. That you can present audiences with evidence and they will make their own narrative. You do not need to tell an audience what to think. You do not need to, um, to, to, to gum up uh, images that are very eloquent with, um, with uh, overbearingly emotional music uh, or um, or narration that tells you what to think. Audiences will make their own narrative because you know, all the only thing we need, the minimum that we need for narrative is two frames. And if you think that that's glib, think of all those books, San Francisco then and now, yeah. you know, where two images yeah. uh, form an extremely eloquent narrative. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's very important what you said. Um, and, and I have to add that we are not alone. Because, for example, here in the audience, there's a good friend of mine, Jay Rosenblatt, who makes fantastic films, uh, uh, um, shooting himself and also using archive materials in a brilliant way. And, and I can mention the, the operas of Bob Wilson also, where you slow down to understand in a different way. So this is not a unique thing, what we're doing. There are others who are thinking in this philosophical way, what is moving image and what is memory? And, and all the things that, that all the tools that, that we use um, in, in these works are really going beyond the surface scratching it because there are a lot of other meanings that we can project and and put together and it's like as you mentioned psychoanalytic uh, approach this is how we are becoming psychoanalysts because we read a smile that is not true because just the mouth is moving and not the eye and we understand that it's not a real smile, maybe. And, and this reading of the other human being and, 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 and composing it to a kind, of, a kind of narrative, not the stereotype narrative, but a kind of new sensitive narrative, how you read yourself, how you read your, 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 your partner, your, your child, how you understand things, it's also built in. It's our immense capacity because our brain are constructed that the input can be 200,000 bits per second. It somehow is designed to jogging in the savanna. And, and driving is a very, very dangerous thing because driving with, with, with 50 miles per hour, you really have to focus because our brain though very flexible, but it's dangerous because you don't see everything. And in this exhibition, I want to expose almost everything. So I use your peripheral vision, your, 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 your following a story which is not a story, just a little poem. And um, yeah. I had a question for you. Go. And it follows from something you said a few, a minute or two ago. So we're flooded with images. We're flooded with historical opportunities. We can uh, YouTube adds 2.168 billion videos a year by my, my estimate. Um, you and I are both in the business of trying to get people to, to think historically to be their own historians. What's your strategy to make this an urgent task? How do you, how do you make uh, restore urgency to the act of thinking historically or the process of thinking historically? It's very difficult because, because there is not one viewer, but, but there are plenty. So I see this problem from the other side that it's what anything what I can do is just an offering, not to force how to think about it, how to decode the image, just put it on the plate, 
in a way that it's, that it's uh, easier to turn in different light and it's easier to understand what's behind it. So it's not, it's not a forceful understanding. It's not direct education, but it's a help for discovery. Now, as I said, this exhibition is not about the Shoah. It's about 1918 and 1939. In between these two dates, there was a country where first time in their Central European history, Polish Jews had the freedom after 150 years of Russian oppression. And this gives something more to the whole thing because the viewer's knowledge, the viewer's association is the real thing. They, they have to compare it with their own experiences, own knowledge. Everybody will have the knowledge of, oh, this city was burned. Oh, Warsaw. It didn't, <laughs> all those people in 1939 colored shot, you know? 1939 summer, shivering, icy, deadly. And it's today because of the Kodak Chrome and because of the gift of the filmmaker. There's a lot of things that we could say, but I would suggest what you say that we would open up to the public. The question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, I was going over my own response to this, but um, okay, okay. I'm yeah, much yeah, more... Yeah. Go, go ahead, go ahead, don't stop, don't All stop. All right, Rick, one please, sentence, please, one sentence. Um, uh, most archival material is, is uh, rather dramatically enclosed, and I would like to see these images as infrastructure. So when you walk down a street, you can see that street on your telephone all throughout time. We're getting there, and you know, I hope it's not too controlled, but history needs to be infrastructure. Uh, I, I strongly believe, and more than just a plaque, um, we need to see moving images in situ. Uh, 